but I am just shocked that they redesigned the soap bar. And you know what? It's just impossible. It won't fit in my soap dish anymore. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm Roger. And welcome to The Middle, where we try to have thoughtful conversations about awkward topics on our search to find The Middle. announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I act as if God exists. Put your masks on. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams, my childhood, with your empty words. Roger, Andy, or whatever your name is, it's been so long. I can't even remember. Do you know what the like the most depressing place in a hotel resort is? The business ender? Damn straight. That's where I'm right now. Oh, we see, but the quality is not that good, so I can't actually see your background very well. I'm like, he's either in some kind of lobby or actually- I'm in the shower. (laughs) I might be looking into one of those folding doors that like go out onto a private pool or something. I can't even tell. There's a bit of blue light back there and something. It's a vending machine. No, I'm in the boardroom in Fiji and there's a, a party going on with whoever's actually using the conference center or the business center during the day. And they're having their kind of their organized dinner. What do you call it again? Cabaret style dinner and having a good old time. And I'm in here and recording a podcast. So maybe you can just crash later and be like fresh off it, man. But anyway, yeah. let's take a step back because we actually have not had a chat here in the middle for, for a month. Probably longer. What would have been our last recorded episode? Oh, we did. We did the nuclear one and the cheapskate one. We did that in one sitting as a bit of oh, behind yeah, the like scenes. It was like The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings where they do it and they record it in one giant thing. Oh, I was thinking Back to the Future where they did number two and three. Oh, even better. <laughs> even more appropriate for us. For us. Do you know that's a musical now? Is it? Like what, a Broadway the musical? Back, no, back the the bro- like Back to the Future. But it uh, was in New York and I was thinking, oh, God, I've got to see a show on Broadway. Didn't want to see any of the others, but oh, Back to the Future, yeah. I really dig that. And then I went on to Spotify and listened to the soundtrack and thought, ah, nah, I'll give this one a miss. It'll <laughs> just like soil my memories of like Back to the Future. Yeah. I also, you become really attached to your idea of who's delivering the songs. I'm not a big musical person, and but I do get obsessed with a few musicals. Hamilton is one of them. And I watched the, the first run that was on Disney Plus that everyone watched. And I really struggled when and then I proceeded to see it live when I went to, to see the live show in, in Sydney. I don't know if you've had that. Maybe you're used to it as a bit more of a musical buff, but I really struggled to get the stylings of Lynn Emanuel actually singing Hamilton's parts out of my head. And it just didn't, it didn't sound right. It's a bit like that with um, most musicals, I think, especially if there's one song, there'll be your favorite song or one where you know that there's a certain way it's meant to be sung. And then because you've listened to the recording of it and you ne- it, it needs to sound exactly like the way you yeah. picture, like the way you <laughs> mentally hear it in your mind. And then, yeah, then some other actor brings their own like artistic interpretations of that. Yeah, no, I'm not Just, interested. Yeah. All right. So we've both been on holidays, right? We haven't spoken for a, a long time. I'd like to just pause and just check. Since we launched the show at the end of last year, right? I feel like for what is essentially a passion project and a catch up between mates, it's played quite a big, you've taken up a lot of space. It's taken up a lot of space in my mind. And I must say it's actually formed a little bit more of my identity than I thought it would being someone who has their own podcast and and it creates content and art like this. How did you feel with the break? Did you miss it? Were you relieved that you had a break from the burden of like recording it? What what actually do you feel about the show? 
I felt like it didn't stop. Like a lot of things to keep moving, right? Like you still got to still got editing, still got to pump out episodes. Yeah. Um, you know, upload. So the actual recording part, that's almost like one part of it that, you know, obviously we didn't do, but yeah, like I felt like it was still with me abroad. Yeah. And also the other thing is like when I've been away, I've been like making these other videos and stuff. So if anything, I've had just different channeled it in like different areas, but like ready to come back. Yeah, I agree. And I think that you almost, because we were releasing our backlog while we were away, right? It's almost like every time you release an episode, it's like your little baby going out into the world and you're excited for some of the ugly ducklings that you're like, oh, don't worry, they'll find their way. And so you actually, as each episode comes out, you almost go through that little mini release for it, which I like. And I hope we don't lose that because I, I feel like obviously if you're 10 years into a show or something like that, then probably you don't feel that way anymore. I think we had like a pipeline of six, six episodes, something like that. Now we're down to a pipeline of zero. So the quality's got to slide from here. Well, now we're desperate. Now's the right time. If you ever wanted to be a guest on the podcast, just come because we're desperate. <laughs> we'll take anyone. You got to spare half an hour in between lunch on a Monday? Let's do it. Maybe we should just carry recorders around with us and just mash it up. That'll be our, our next episode. We did have grand plans of like, oh no, you know, we use this modern day. We use all cloud-based tools. We'll be able to record episodes on the run. You just leave something. We'll do it asynchronously. You leave a bit and I'll leave a bit and we'll just patch it all together. We did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, just before we go into where we actually went to, because I think it's almost like an in-joke, right, that we know what we've done, but no one else does. But um, how did you find the, the experience of doing the vlog? Yeah, so I decided that I was not going to spend all this money and time on this trip and not get something out of it. So I just had my phone and I just took videos and, yeah, it's been good. It's a fine line between having it not become work and... Mm as in feeling like a chore, but getting joy out of it. By the way, just like, this is not a public vlog. This is just for me. And, it's behind and, the paywall. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's right. You've got to pay um, OnlyFans um, <laughs> at Andy. Um, this is just a personal thing, right? For family and stuff like that. But this is something that I think I'll probably come back to in 10 years time or 20 years time. And it'll be like, yeah, yeah, it'll be more profound than, yeah. So I feel like any short term, yeah, it's a bit, la bit laborious or whatever. Yeah, I, I'm really happy with yeah the record of the trip and yeah to have something to keep with us out of it. Like a, it's the ultimate souvenir, really. Yeah, it is, and like back in the day, especially your mums and stuff, right? Like it's the photo book, the photo album, right? There's so much pride in the family photo album, and I think we've lost that a little bit. We do have photo books and services like that, but for the main part, it just stays on the phone, and it, you have this rolling anxiety and panic about how big your iCloud bill is getting every month and you don't really have a plan to manage it or stop it. And I do feel like that is something that is lacking. Like you said, to have a chronicle of what happened, that, that is, even if you don't look at it very often, it's such a kind of a valued asset in my opinion. But yeah, I'm keen to, to break down our trips a little bit because what I have, right? Like I almost wish we had done our travel episode after our travel thing. I don't know why we did that. I don't know why the fuck we did that. But I've got all this stuff in my head now about obviously traveling with the family. And then this is the first international trip that I've done post COVID, right? And I've got all this stuff and all this stuff is all swimming in my head. And I'm really keen to see how you went because we couldn't have gone to more you know, polar opposites in terms of world culture. Than what we did. Hey, every country is represented in the United States. Just because Vegas has a little little Eiffel Tower doesn't mean that. <laughs> no, no, it's the um, it's the gondolas. That's what. Oh yeah, the water's probably a lot cleaner. 
So it was my birthday when we were over there, and my birthday is on the 4th of July, which is Independence Day in the US. So that's, that was a happy coincidence. But um, we went to this Italian restaurant, and I just wanted Italian, right? And it was called like Family Style. <laughs> Sorry, the restaurant wasn't called family style, but the restaurant was described as family style, right? In, in my <laughs> mind, that just meant that, you know, it was like, yeah, bring the family. It's casual. Like, it's not fancy. It, it's like casual sort of but place you bring your family. All generations under one roof. But like what it meant in reality was that you order like a plate of whatever your meal is, right? Whether it's pasta or, you know, I ordered the um, eggplant parmesana. And what it means is like they bring you this plate that basically is the size of your table and <laughs> it's just it's massive and not massive by American standards. Like literally it's for a whole family. So we ordered these two dishes and it's like, <laughs> we had like less than 20% of it. And we had like food for the next week of in doggy bags, but it's anyway. like, a, like a trough, a trough of pasta yeah. that they present in front of you. Yeah. There's some differences there. <laughs> Do they get really, cause obviously I, I went to Italy, right? And obviously if you do not, there's such a food centric culture, but they also get very offended if you don't like finish your food sometimes. So do they kind of have a go at you be like, oh, why did you come to a family restaurant if you're not going to eat like a family amount? My theory about America is that, you know, how like portion sizes are so big and when you get like a, or like a soft drink, right? Or soda or whatever, you order the small one and their small is our, is like equivalent to our like jumbo, right? Like, it, it's built into that whole thing. Like you don't just want to go and have a mm. meal. You want to be able to like bring food home, right? That's part of the value proposition. So yeah, I think that's built into the culture there. So no rolled eyes or whatever. I'm sure we weren't <laughs> the good. first tourists that ordered a plate of pasta and yeah, got enough for a trough for a horse. But anyway. You're telling the story, aren't you? So that's free promotion for them. We'll leave the link in the show notes. So Roger, let's start with you and your trip. You went to Italy, is that right? Yeah. So the whole purpose of the trip was to essentially meet meet my partner's family, specifically her brother who lives in France, right? So originally we were going to go to France, spend some time together. You know, we've got the little bub and they also had a child and they're only a couple of weeks, uh, a month or so apart. And so they haven't met, so this is the first time. So we're going to meet in France, but then they decided, well, no, we'll drive to Italy. The whole trip is centered around a family visit with my partner's mom and brother and partners and kids in a Tuscan villa. So that's the heart of the trip. But around it, we went into Rome and had three or four nights there. Then we went down to Malfi, which was amazing. And then we made our way back up to Tuscany. So we had the seven kind of days at this amazing old Tuscan villa. And then we finished the trip in London town to see some friends and then back home. So it so, was, uh, yeah. So were you tag teaming with the family the whole time or was it like, so did you, did the three of you have any kind of solo time to do side trips as part of that broader or was it just the whole trip was in-laws and all that sort of stuff? No, absolutely. On either side, we had just the, that one week all together and there were parts where we were in contact with family on and off and then London was just all ourselves as well, staying with the friends. So there was definitely a good mix around that, what was essentially a family trip at the heart of it, right? In Tuscany, yeah. as you do. So, so it was, like, it was a lot you're of places this, that I hadn't been there before. So you're in this like villa, this Airbnb, I presume, style arrangement in the yeah. not maybe not the middle of nowhere is probably not quite the right way to put it, but nonetheless, you're not like in this. You know, it's not like you're in a staying at the Intercontinental in Central <laughs> Rome or anything like that. You know, it's it, so it was very much about being in the villa, right? Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. Like there's a few in Tuscany. There's obviously like day trips that you can do out to historical towns and things. 
Did you have um, a car? Yeah, you have to have a car. So we actually, we had three cars. It was like this big old villa, gated and things like that. And we spent most of the time there. It was a really lovely villa, but very historical. So how how did you find driving? Aren't they like crazy on the roads in Italy? Yeah, look, it wasn't, it depends where you are, right? So leaving Rome and stuff was pretty crazy. And especially for Australians, right? Because we drive on the left-hand side of the road, like the English do. Yeah. So we have a right-hand drive where the steering wheel is on the right-hand side, but we're on the left-hand side of the road. It's the opposite in Italy. And you wouldn't think it's that hard to wrap your head around, but even your placement in the middle of the lane becomes challenging. And then whenever you go to an intersection, it's just another thing to think about that you're so programmed to looking one way and not the other that your brain's really tiring you out because you have to think about these things otherwise you're going to fucking die. And then let alone with the Italian drivers who, let's just say, the rules are merely a suggestion, not so much like a, so everyone's doing their own thing. Speed limits go from 30 to 130. I'm like, what? There's nothing in between. Jumps from 30 to 130 kilometers an hour. And it was like, they, they were too lazy to adjust. So I'll just put a one in front of it, right? Rather than reuse these signs. We're just going to, so yeah, it was a bit challenging, but once you got into the heart of Tuscany, it was, it was like suburban driving from there. So it was okay. Yeah. It wasn't too bad, yeah. but Rome was terrible and the highways are a little bit freaky, but let me tell you. We didn't drive in the Amalfi Coast, but do not drive in the Amalfi <laughs> Coast. It's like, it is a me- like, that shit's like medieval infrastructure and the roads, man. It's like what we would classify as a tight one-way road is their two, like their mainstay two-way highway, two-lane highway, sorry. It's crazy. And like pedestrians are almost getting hit on a constant. I struggle with hook turns in Melbourne, let alone uh, Italy. But um, yeah, I mean, that whole um, reverse kind of side of the road thing because of course in america it's the same right and i do find that like you get that shock that that adjustment right but i found that after a month in the states like by the end of it i was i normalized it and with the driver's seat being in in, on the left instead of the right and so on but like then when we arrived in fiji and then it reverts back to how it is in australia i was like oh this is so weird. So it's just like this adjustment sort of thing that takes a bit of getting used to. But yeah, okay. So in Italy, yeah, I mean, we don't just want the standard kind of, yeah, we went to Italy. Like, <laughs> what's the juicy stuff? Tell me what went wrong. Did you get mugged? No, nothing like that. But And I was quite paranoid about losing bags because on a previous trip, we, we had a bag go missing, right? And it was actually a pram for the baby. And uh, this time... I bought so many air tags. There was like an air tag up my asshole, right? Like I had everything on Wi-Fi tracking. And of course, that meant that everything went smoothly. So bags were fine, all that kind of stuff. But I must admit, oh man, traveling with a nine-month-old is pretty brutal, right? And uh, just the plane ride like is hard enough. For our international listeners, you know, a trip from Sydney, a trip from Sydney, Australia to all the way to Rome is like a 24 hours ordeal in the sky, right? And obviously... You're fucked after that, right? Like, you, did you have the the bulkhead, like with the bassinet? We did, right? We so on one leg we had the bassinet, right, which is like a little tiny cot that sits in the front. But as a result, you can't. It's a blessing and a curse, right? Because two things happen. So the pro is you get a little, a tiny little kind of cot that hangs precariously in the wall that you can put your baby in, right, and hope that they sleep in it. Ours didn't like sleep in that thing, and it's tiny. It's like, they have to be almost like straight jacketed in there, but it's just, it's a place there. you have a little bit more leg room, but the con is that you can't have anything on the ground through takeoff or when things go bad. So you can't have your bags or any of that stuff. All that has to go up, which is a pain in the ass. And then also you're more likely to have 
other babies next to you because all the bassinet bulkhead seats are all together, right? So it's like when people say, oh, we have a cinema sh- a screening time that is kid-friendly. But really what that means is we're going to take all the shitty kids that make all the worst noise and we're going to put them all together into this weird ghetto cinema. And that's kind of what can happen, right, when you get these seats. So yeah, it's a bit of a blessing and a curse. For us, we decided that on the second leg, so we had we changed to Singapore and then we got in and there was a mix up with our seats and they didn't actually, they didn't give us the bassinet seat, right, in the bulkhead. And we were like, oh, how is it going to work? Breastfeeding, all this kind of stuff. And we just, we had to go at them and then finally they asked one of our passengers to move. So we had the whole row to ourselves and that worked much better, actually. It was away from all the action and other kids and things like that. Um, and that worked a lot better for us. So it really depends. And I think that so much of your experience on these long haul flights depends on your seat and your conditions, who's around you, what's happening, that kind of stuff, right? We had, we've talked about before, but we had a situation where there was a fairly large, girthy um, mother on one side of us. And and obviously she had a baby and the baby doesn't have their own seat. And it was just unmanageable. We're just like, like spilling over and like, with the breastfeeding, you've got to go both sides. And there's just like this one time I like looked over, I'm like, oh man, she's got her pillow on me. And I looked over and it's just like her arm just spilling over. And it was like this like soft pudgy arm. Anyway, it was tough. It's very uncomfortable. And it just shows you how fragile humans are. We can't even handle being like stuck in a chair for longer than eight hours, let alone 24 hours, let alone with a baby. So it's just the, it, that, that, that part, I can honestly say there's like, there are parts of that mentally you're like, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this to ourselves? But at the end of the day, there's that amazing kind of feeling of getting there. It all becomes part of the story. Isn't that just, so with a nine-month-old baby, it's not going to be good, but even like grown adults who travel solo whinge about getting on a plane, like with no, with not a worry in the world, right? This is just, this is, this is not like universally uh, like horrible experience and that's Um, if everything goes right let alone when like plans planes are cancelled and all sorts of horrible things happen yeah look to be honest we had a we're pretty pretty fortunate like nothing really bad went wrong on our trip touch wood because we're not home yet but the one hiccup we had was getting to las vegas from new york you know you can check in online and stuff like and you have to buy bags as well you have to pay money to check in a bag so we did all that stuff the night before. So we're already checked in. We just have to like bag drop, right? And then we enter our details at the airport and it says flight cancelled. Gah, fuck, here we go. This is going to, oh, this man. is, but you'd think like from New York to Vegas, yeah. like that should be manageable, but they're just so useless, especially in America. I'm sorry, but like American airline staff, like they're just the worst, right? Like it says see attendant. So I go and see an attendant <laughs> and they just say, oh, it's flight cancelled. Oh, you'll get an email. I'm like, oh, okay, when will I get an email? I can't tell you, I don't know. And, and they're like, are we flying today or what's going on? Oh, you'll get an email. And it's like, will I get an email? Like, when will I get it? Like, within, like, how long will I get this email? And couldn't tell me, like, because I didn't get any email. <laughs> and so it's just, just utterly useless. Can't tell me anything. Can't tell me why it's cancelled. Can't tell me. I asked them, like, am I flying today? I can't tell you. You'll get an email, right? So it's all hinged on this like email, this mysterious email that we're going to get. Then we get some email, some random email. The only detail in the email was, it still didn't tell us why it was cancelled. It just said, unfortunately, due to the cancellation of your flight, you're not entitled to any compensation. Like that's all the, the, the detail of the email, right? So I still don't know what's happening, right? I've got no idea. And then, and then, and then like, anyway, some hours later. So I don't even know, like, should we hang around in the airport like what no idea what to do then the next email says something like 
oh, we've added another flight tomorrow. Anyway, so our kind of out was that like we booked it through a different airline. So it was like a code share sort of situation. So we went to American Airlines, which was the, so it was like a JetBlue flight that was canceled. So then we went to American Airlines, which is a different terminal. Like we're just being a bit entrepreneurial in the airport. And we went to the terminal for American Airlines and said, hey, what's going on? And then they then would actually engage with us in a conversation about getting to Las Vegas, which involved like routing us via not because they didn't have direct flights. So we ended up having to fly via Los Angeles, but we didn't, we couldn't get on. So we had to like, it was sold out. So we had to go on standby. So I don't know if you've ever been on standby before, but it's just basically no. here. So basically the deal is you go to the gate and there's like a standby list and it's like a ranking. And then all the people who don't show up, like you get to take their seats. And so sometimes like you'll get on, but some, it just depends on if there's no shows or whatever. So okay. what happened is we're like, I think there's, there was like four spots, right, that, that got through and we were like, so we're a party of three. So we were like three, four, and five. Yeah. So it was like we had the choice of like splitting up as a group or like just taking what we could get. And then so in the end we did that. And oh, you split up? So, yeah, we split up because it was like, we don't know if we'll get on it. Like, we, cause it's like all those flights were sold out. So there was another flight leaving like an hour later that I would then go on standby for. So that was the plan, right? But if we were all to try and get on standby for that later flight, it would be like quite risky because we wouldn't necessarily yeah, all get the same it. Same thing would be totally again. screwed. Yeah. But like the funniest part about that is that there's this queue of standby people. And then there's like my wife, my son and me. And then there's these two guys like that are one number one and two, and my wife's just like giving them the biggest stare down. Did she ask them? Yeah, oh, yeah. I think she. I think she. I don't. I can't remember, but it but was did like, she like asked through the through the you know. It wasn't a like. I think it wasn't an explicit. Would you mind not flying so we can all fly together? But it was like how to say it without saying it, if you know what I mean. So yeah, but I mean they were just lone guy travelers on their own, and to be fair, like I can understand from their perspective that. You, they're in the same situation as us. They just want to get wherever to wherever they're going, so they don't want to be. Yeah, like, they, got that, they don't want know, to be. They got their prostitute <laughs> bookings that are. <laughs> they've got their they've got their foosball dates with their mates to get to planned yeah. all year. It's it's tough when that happens though, right? Because you don't know how people react when it comes to that, whether people are selfish or not, or how much responsibility they might feel, empathy they might feel. Because we had a similar thing on that second leg that I mentioned, where we had reserved the bassinet seat. But the reserve when you do your booking is never a guarantee. It's only when at the point of when they actually issue your boarding pass. So for whatever reason, maybe there was a plane change or whatever, we didn't get that. And so they were asking, but we could see there were people in the bassinet. There's only a few bassinet rows and there was just like some regular Joes there. And we're like, they're not even using the bassinet. And the attendant, the manager of the thing was like, all right, yeah, we'll go ask them if they're willing to swap it, they probably will because they don't need the bassinet. And then we like literally like watching it happen and they go up and the guy, the man and woman are just like shaking their head. And they're like, no, the best <laughs> bit about that was like, so yeah, my partner was raging. It's like, why are they even in that seat? Like, why would they preference that way? Right. When we got the baby. And then as we're like walking up the row, like later as the flights progressed, it's like this, it's not even like this six foot six person that needs the leg room. It's this tiny five foot little Italian woman who's totally, she's, she's got the, 
And she's got the, what do they put on their eyes? Like the little blindfold thing and like the little pants. She's got a little cozy neck pillow and she's totally put her foot out and her feet can't even really reach the, the bassinet wall with the wall where the bassinet goes on. So she's chalked up a folded towel so that she can be completely flat. <laughs> so I just think some people just fuck it. You know, this is Lord of the Jungle when it comes to flying and you just, you got to read the, the policy and you got to do what you got to do, right? I really resonate with the useless American staff at the airport and the stuff like that where they take it so personally when flights are cancelled, right? They just assume that you're going to be at their throats and then it's like, oh, fuck, it's not my problem. It's, I just work here. <laughs> like, uh, I really is, every time it happens, it's like the first time it's ever happened. Like, they didn't have any way of dealing with it. Like, they would know. All people want to find out are these three things, right? What has happened? When am I going to find out the next detail? Like, what hopes are there? And they have to have this conversation with every single passenger on the plane, right? Who's been affected. And then they have to find potentially hotels for them and all these other things, depending on the nature of the ticket. And they just have no way of doing it properly. Like, I just, I actually can't believe it. Do you know what really shits me though is, is like airport staff, airline staff, how like they get into this immediately defensive mode, right? Yeah, they're not, you're attacking them. They don't even approach it with, oh, our customers have been fucked around by something we've done to them. So we better be polite to them and courteous. It's like the other way around. It's like... Especially the they, Americans, I think. Oh, hell yeah. They start yeah. almost like attacking you. So that was the first one. Oh, you'll get an email. Like not, oh, I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry your flight's been cancelled. Yeah, we'll definitely try and like that, all that kind of service stuff, right? So not only has my flight been cancelled, but I've just missed out on this like backup flight with my family going and me hanging like behind, right? Oh, man. How'd you and feel then, about that? I don't even know if I could do that. <laughs> well, I just figured, ah, uh, this is like the only way we have a... Oh, by the way, like we didn't make it to Vegas that night. So we missed like the first night of our accommodation there and had to like have a layover in LA. But anyway, that's another story. But but like the attendant at the gate, it's like, so I've missed out. And then it's okay, so we have to book you now on whatever the next flight is. It's, oh, so where are you going? I'm like, to Vegas. I'm like, we don't fly to Vegas. I was like, that's where my ticket's to. He's like, well, where do you want, how do you want to get, how do you want to go there? It's like, you figure it out. You're the bloody airline. Okay. It's just this, it's just, but like actually quite rude to me. And I was just like, you've just fucked me around. And now you, it's like, what the fuck? Like, I know people have this sense of entitlement and they rock up. I paid $60 for my flight to the Gold Coast. How dare you delay it by half an hour kind of thing, right? So that kind of stuff is if that's what they deal with 99% of the time I can get it but I, like genuinely fucked over like they cancelled the fucking flight yeah. this is they fucked up I'm ready to go I've done everything that I had to do I paid their money I had to pay twice for the bags and they're still fucking talk, treating me like shit like it's just oh uh, anyway it's like when it's like they kind of almost think when this happens, they don't go, oh, our poor customers, right? What we've put them through. They're like, poor me. Now I have to deal with these fucking customers. That's what they think, I think. Um, I can only think but, that it yeah. must be like a tactic. Like it must be, we've got to be like on the attack because if we give them an inch, they'll take a mile. So we've got to, we, the starting point needs to be, they need to be scared of us so they don't ask us to do anything reasonable. I think that what I've experienced, right, on the long haul flights, because I think that's where, so let's fast forward back into the cabin, right? We're now in the air. When you see the real professional long haul flight attendants dealing with customers, they take they definitely take that approach, right? They have to be they have to be like firm, right? Because there are some customers that are just they will just take everything from them and they will just like keep on taking and taking until they reach that boundary or wall. So they definitely have this tactic of, okay, I'm here to help you, but under my terms, right? And like if you ask me something 
that is outside my terms or is like irregular in any way, I will attack you and I will make sure you know that's not happening, right? And I might be this kind of beautiful woman with done up hair and eyeshadow and fake eyelashes, but I will fucking go for the jugular if I need to, right? Because I can also lift this 25 kilogram boarding thing that you shouldn't have brought on this plane above your head and stow it for you. <laughs> so it's definitely a tactic. There, there are some asshole customers on the other side of that where they, and usually it's men and sometimes old women, but they just treat the flight attendants like, how much can I like milk out of this cow, right? Like how much can I get? I want, I want the best food. This is not hot enough. I want this. I want the temperature's wrong. I need a pillow. This pillow's not right. Oh, there was like, they just go on and on. And yeah, because I paid the fee, I, I get all of this, right? This is part of it. And I can totally see that they have to play it hard. They have to be like cops almost. It's, you need to respect me. Otherwise this whole system breaks down. We're in the air. We're in a, we're in a bus, a tin can in the air. And if I lose the crowd, Oh, fuck. If I can help, all hell is going to break loose. Like I have to show some kind of force. Before we go off, I think the other hard thing I want to talk about with kids is the jet lag. And I have experienced, obviously, jet lag previously when I've flown without kids, but you bounce back really fast. And it's almost actually fun in some ways because you're just like, it's like novel. You're like, oh, I feel tired like halfway through the day or like I'm struggling to stay up for dinner. Isn't that funny, right? And I have a glass of wine and then go to sleep early or whatever. But with kids, it is a fucking nightmare like with the baby, right? And we just, we even thought with a nine month old, oh, the sleeping is shit anyway. We might not even know. We might not even know what's going on. But I tell you, when that kid wakes up at in Rome at, and she wants to start her day at 2.30 a.m. and like properly start her day, it is hell. And like she has an awake window at that time or whatever, right? And you just think to yourself, like, you're so hopeless, you're right? There actually is no way out of this. I don't know what to do. There's nothing I can do. Like she is awake. She thinks it's the daytime and it is the middle of the night in Rome. And it's just, it was like crazy just to think about that. And like everyone has a cure, has advice for jet lag, right? And it's like a hangover cure. It never works. It never works except for the person who's telling you. I don't know if you, do you have a cure for jet lag? For me, the cure is just, just bite the bullet and stay up and get back on track, right? Like we actually, one thing when we arrived in the States, it was, we, we actually traveled via Fiji to get here or to get there in Los Angeles. So normally, like if you fly direct from Sydney to LA, you leave around 11 a.m. Sydney time and then you get to LA at 6, 6 or 7 a.m. LA time and it's ah, uh, so the day starts, right? And it's ah, uh, and you can't check into your hotel or anything. So it's yeah. just horrible. But whereas our flight left a bit later, stopped in Fiji. So it took just like a little bit longer. And then by the time we got to the hotel, it was like 3 p.m. or something like that. And then 3 p.m., it's just long enough that you can just stay up for another four hours and then go to bed at like 7, 7 p.m. And it's mm. you just gradually get back on it that way. Whereas, yeah, if you get like the worst thing you can do is arrive at 3 p.m. and then go to sleep at, or go to sleep at lunchtime. <laughs> like that, that's, yeah. Well, so anyway, that's my cure. That's my hot tip. Yeah. Some people have like things where thing rituals they do when they get there or they, they do some grounding or exposure. Some people take melatonin tablets. That's really popular as well. But I must say that we totally screwed it up as well because we did the whole, oh, the baby needs a nap. We're tired. We just need a nap. We'll set the alarm. And then you wake up six hours later and you have slept through like dinner or whatever it is. And you just know we couldn't have fucked this more. And there's nothing you can do now, right? You've literally slept through dinner or whatever it is. And now you're you're awake in the middle of the night or whatever. So yeah, we had to do that the hard way. And uh, there's always that pressure too of, yes, you're on a holiday, but you're also in Rome. And how many times in your life are you actually going to 
see some of these amazing places. So you feel this pressure to get out and make sure you're making the most of things, which is the hard thing, which can be quite stressful, right? And so that's at the back of you too. Is ah, oh, I don't want to waste when every meal you waste, every time you know that you spend unwisely or whatever. You're never getting that time back again, right? The time is really condensed and precious when you're on holidays. No, definitely. Just to rub it in, because I know you were saying how tough it was to travel with children. <laughs> so my my son, he's he's ten. So he's this is the first proper trip. This is our first trip after COVID as well, but. All of our overseas trips before were to like Asia or places a bit closer to home. And he w- he was younger, so you know we, we were very much still in that sort of parenting mode. But this is the first trip we've been on where we can do things like leave him in the hotel room. And oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and just stuff like that, for example. As you, sorry, <laughs> the I real like, question is, Andy, though, did you let him ride the New York subway? By himself? <laughs> Not on his own, no. This um, was your opportunity. This was your opportunity. Now, I, I do have some reflections on that post, uh, having seen it more, in a more contemporary state. But just with, I mean, we so we stayed in the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas, right? Which was pretty good because it's all just, if you've never been there, it's just imagine like this big shopping center with like lots of high-end restaurants and obviously the casino itself, but also shops and all this stuff. It's all under one roof. And then your hotel is connected to that shopping center. But then also you've got like the resorts, so you've got like all the pools and you know, just all the facilities. And But like the hotel room is like it's in the same complex so you can just like it's quite reasonable to yeah, yeah leave him in the room and then we just go down for dinner or whatever and we don't need nannies or babysitting or anything like that. Things like well, that, yeah, it was good. Yeah, I mean I don't really want to hear this segment to be honest because <laughs> I'm going through the hard stuff. But yeah, look, I think, I, think I, I do get with kids and stuff obviously like with the nine month old she's got no idea what's going on which is even more hilarious right that she's experiencing all these amazing things like when we're in the Malfi coast we were staying in a town called um priano which is in between positano and Malfi. beautiful and you, you, positano is the one you always see on instagram built up the mountain gorgeous vertical city so you're looking straight at that beautiful view like unique you're never going to see this anywhere else in the world anything like it and our daughter, our nine-month-old daughter, is literally like looking at this view while she's having her breakfast, while Italian nonnas are like lusting after her cuteness. Yet she's nine months old; she's not going to remember this. It's, it's you have this kind of crazy feeling of what is happening here. She is not going to be able to remember this, but at the same time, what is a memory? I suppose she's experiencing it like we are in, in some form of the word. But you do have that feeling of oh, what's going on here. One thing I will say, just to take some reflections on. Um, I suppose, some of the locations that we're at. Have you been to Rome? Yeah. Yeah, I actually really like Rome. You actually really like Rome? Yeah, I do. It's got this gritty sort of... Why, um, why would you Why would you for a minute think you wouldn't like Rome? <laughs> I didn't think that. I just said I really <laughs> no, but like you're Rome. like, I, I actually did like Rome. It's like, no, everyone Well, no, <laughs> it's... Um, yeah, well, I mean, I really like Rome as in it's like one of my favorite places in Europe. Yeah, yeah, me too. So it was my second time going there. And this time we stayed in an Airbnb. It was actually just someone's apartment right in the middle of the city, um, quite near the Spanish Steps. But I guess Rome itself is quite small where all the action is. And um, Rome's one of those places where it's just, it never changes, right? I guess that's why they call it the eternal city, right? Like it's just so historical and so slow moving and the culture is so thick that it just feels the same, right? And it has this like real comforting vibe, right? With all the landmarks and the food and everything. It's like almost seeing an old friend in a way, right? And one thing that I did notice this time that I didn't notice the in my previous trip was that uh, the policemen, like I don't know whether it's a thing, but like whenever you see policemen in Rome, they have exactly the same look 
and the look is akin to a like what we would see in the West as like a stripper. <laughs> Every single one of them have the same look. They have the the really masculine like beard, beard, facial hair everywhere. They've got like the one tattooed arm. They're like always got the little Italian vanity haircut and stuff like that. It was really cool. And I just felt like they were like these little strippers all over town trying to attract business, but really they were the policemen. The other thing we had, we had this dicey thing. So we were staying in this tiny little apartment on the top floor, which was fun getting our bags up. And it opened into this like really quite narrow stairway down and you had to like bust down and there was all this all these signs on the inside saying make sure you shut the door make sure you shut the door when you leave and one day i went out to grab a little bit of food for us and as i opened the door and it's like very dark inside the lights weren't working and then it blinds you as you open into like the roman street and the sunlight streams in as i came out that door was blinded there was this man there who like held the door open as i opened it right and he was a really dodgy looking character. He had a, a shaved head, a goatee. He was in like a full black suit and he had an earpiece in and he held the door open. And it's always awkward when someone does that when it comes to an apartment block because really you shouldn't let them in, right? But it's always hard to challenge someone because they might live there, they might know someone there, you don't know what's going on. And he said something to me in Italian. Of course, I didn't understand it. He said it fast. And as they turned around and he entered the apartment block, I saw on his waist that he was carrying a holster. And there was a baton there and there was a knife like strapped to his waist. But he was wearing a full suit. Like it looked like a, an Armani suit. It fit really well and it didn't look like a government suit. Because originally I was thought, oh, maybe he's like a driver or someone waiting to pick someone up. And he just stood in the doorway and then he was texting someone quite angrily. And every now and then he like banged his fist against the, like, the wall of the apartment block. And I started to get really worried. Because you're not in a hotel, you're in an Airbnb. You don't know what the fuck's going on. Maybe the owner of our Airbnb owed this guy, has some dealings with this guy or whatever's going on. I can't speak the language. My partner's upstairs with the kid. And so I circled around and watched him and he just kind of loitered in the in the entrance, holding the door open and like looking at his phone frustrated. And I didn't really know what to do. So I called back upstairs and I was like, look, this is the situation. There's a guy downstairs. He looks hella dodgy. He's got a weapon on him. Do not open the door. For, do not open the door. It's not me. I will... I've got a key. I will open the door. Do not open the door for anyone. As of course, she's freaking the fuck out. I'm like, oh, what do I do? I don't want to come straight back or whatever. I do a loop and then I'm like, ah, oh, I'm just going to have to, I'm just going to have to come back and just deal with it. And it, whether he's waiting there or whatever is going on. And I'm just trying to work through the scenarios. What do I do here? And yeah, I just come in and he's like waiting in the shadows. And as I come in, he says again, something to me in Italian. And I say, oh, I say something in English and he lets me pass. And then I get back to the apartment and we just hope for the best. And to this day, we don't really know what happened. Like we heard this kind of scratching around in the hallway for ages. And it just made me realize that these are the things you don't realize about Airbnbs. Right? You don't know who's in the building with you. You don't know what the fuck's going on. There's no security. There's no one there to help you. And anything could happen, right? And so it's pretty weird, right? So I don't know. What do you make of that situation? Yeah, well, that, that's... that's um it's one of many reasons why I always a little bit like apprehensive about Airbnb, particularly like in a foreign country or one where they don't speak English, because that makes it like just exponentially harder so to, hard to manage, deal right? with it. You know, and, and the other thing is, is it it's underscores like just how much more we're on alert in a foreign setting or in a setting that you're not used to. So if that kind of thing happened in Australia, I mean, it's hard to think of that exact situation happening in Australia, but because it is a country or setting you're familiar with, you, you know yeah, how to place it. you be able to have like, more data points to say, am I at risk or not? Yeah, exactly. And that's what, that was the biggest shock factor for me and 
arriving in the States because our hotel is, was it, our first hotel was in Hollywood and it was a nice hotel and stuff, but we're in the hotel and we like go out for a walk and then it's like on the street and it's fuck every, it's barely five meters out of the hotel and it's just straight away dodgy. Like it's, you've got like homeless people everywhere, you've got drugs, like people like drugged up people lying on the street, people asking for money, like homeless camps, like it, it like Literally in the first, okay, so we arrived from the plane, have a shower after however long the flight was, and then, okay, get something to eat. Literally the first, like, 50 meters walked out of the hotel. It was, like, straight away just, oh, fuck it out. <laughs> it was, like, I w- like, as a grown man was scared, was actually very apprehensive about it. But then by the end of it was quite... Just normalized. Yeah, it was just like, oh, yeah. Even to the point of passing, because you mentioned the subway earlier, passing a gang of youths like with crack pipes and stuff in the subway and just thinking nothing of it sort of thing. And yeah, actually one thing with with the States too, like and the last time I was there was probably about 15 years ago. It's been some time, although maybe I've forgotten that it was like that. There's a lot of really fucked up people, like as in a combination of, well, I think it's predominantly drugs, right? Yeah. Or people just high roaming the streets, right? So if you walk past one of those, someone of that setting in Sydney, you would be, very apprehensive but in in america it's just like well you can't walk 10 meters without walking past five people like that so you just you just kind of is it you just is, get used to it is la as bad as they they say you know like when they say it's really fallen off a cliff now in terms of the homelessness and the tents and things yeah definitely um i can only draw on my own memory so it might not be fully accurate but I don't know. I, I never remember it being that bad. So when I was last there, maybe 2008, 2009, something like that. And it was like Skid Row in downtown LA. That's like the famous sort of area of like homeless camps and tents and all that sort of stuff. That's the famous place to, to see like poverty and homelessness at its worst, right? And definitely, I do remember definitely seeing like a lot of dodgy characters like in especially places like hollywood and stuff they're just sprinkled along there because i'm not sure quite sure why they're there but anyway that's just seems to be a place that that another place another hotspot. but the biggest difference this time around was i think there's probably two differences that i noticed that were seemed to be different the first was probably the yeah the volume of like homeless camps so like in hollywood now like every second street is like skid row so it's like there's these tents like along the streets and it's just i guess they congregate there it's it's probably like maybe safety in numbers or something like that and it's i think it's a place where yeah there's maybe some housing uh, temporary housing in that area so maybe they go there and then they miss out so they just sleep rough or whatever but yeah that's just like now hollywood itself is has almost proliferated that whole skid row sort of feeling or vibe which um i never remember it being quite like that and then the second thing that was a bit different was I think a lot more people really just fucked up. <laughs> My first thought was, oh, maybe it's just because like, marijuana is now legal and just people just <laughs> go crazy or whatever. But I think this stuff's like a lot harder than that. It's um, When you say people are, f- are fucked up, you, you describe it to me like... Well, they're just, they're catatonic. Like they're, they're just a combination. Around, like zombies? Or? Yeah, yeah. Like they're just, they're like laying on the street, not asleep, but just like, 
making sounds or just it's or they're just walk they're just totally fucked fucked like totally high and they're just walking around yelling in the streets or it's not just like they're a little bit slow or a little bit like look a bit happy or drunk or something it's something going on they're seeing like green aliens like jump from the roofs that's where their head's at right now yeah it was the thing um, i remember andy was like when i I mean i was there even longer than you i think 20 years ago but in la there was such a police presence they were everywhere like the lapd right they were around every corner yeah around so is that no longer the case no i didn't yeah i didn't really see much of obviously like they're around but not a big heavy police presence i did see a big police presence in new york that was they were very visible and stuff but see the thing is like the police as well in new york like they're not going after like so I think the thing is like people like that, they're harmless, right? So they're a little bit sketchy and there's probably some that aren't harmless or whatever, but like someone who's really fucked up is like their capabilities are shot to do whatever things that they might otherwise wish to do. So Man, you're not filling me with confidence. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'll give you an example. In New York, like 7-Eleven, right? There's, pe- there's fucked up people like in the 7-Eleven and they're throwing pizzas around, right? And there's they're just grabbing food and like eating it like, Obviously, like they're not going to pay for it. Like, just I don't know what, in what state they're in, but but there's police in there just buying their shit, and then and they're not well, they're not doing, doing anything. anything. Yeah, they're just this is, like, ah, this is just they they can get private security to deal with this stuff. I think there's this sort of we'll be a police presence. So if someone gets attacked, like we'll be there to help out or whatever. But it's not they're not like shoo go away. <laughs> this is not a place for you to be. That's that, that to me is, is I guess is very hard to understand the scale of the problem, but. If someone's like shoplifting and like ruining, oh, I think it's know. just. I think the but see the but the shop attendants weren't doing anything either. So I think that everyone's just making like a calculated sort of decision to just just get this. Get these people are not going to be like respond to rational kind of responses to this, right? So if the police, like a normal person, would see the police and not do those things, but they're not reacting in that way anyway so if you provoke that person like what are you going to get is it tactically or strategically better to just write it off as a loss and just deal with it or like potentially escalate it and it becomes this even bigger thing and maybe they have to taser the person or get a gun out or something and all this sort of stuff and it becomes a lot more heated so i think everyone's making that calculated sort of decision to de-escalate sort of thing or not to escalate it rather yeah, I just have a question mark of whether it, whether they're actually harmless, to be honest, because when I have come into contact with those types of people, whether at home or abroad, they've always had an altercation with someone. They're very rarely just like going nuts by themselves. They do tend to harass people, right? And they I, harass I people, but I think in a harmless way, if that makes sense. So like they might yell abuse at someone, but do they like physically assault someone? On average, I think no. And that's the thing that everyone's playing to, right? And like, to, to be fair, like the areas we went to in New York and LA are not like, and San Francisco as well, they're not the the nice areas. Like when you're talking about like staying in Hollywood and staying in like Manhattan and particularly around Times Square where we were, and certainly San Francisco in the, the downtown area, a lot of those areas, that's like the area where you get a lot of this dodgy stuff, right? So that's the epicenter of it. But yeah, I think it's just people just have to kind of... Look, I I think they've got a big problem. I think personally, I think that's... sad, man. Yeah, like I don't feel sad from the perspective of, oh, I'm a tourist, I'd love to be free from all this 
and the poor residents of LA and that can't go to Hollywood and see a movie without getting accosted by yeah. homeless people. Like, I actually feel sorry. Like, the problem is that you actually have so many homeless people and so many people fucked up on drugs. And um, in America, in America, right? Yeah, it's been such an affluent country, right? That's probably the biggest difference between Australia and the US is just the extremes, right? And again, like particularly in a city like LA, you've got within the space of within a few kilometers, you've got like Hollywood, which is grimy, homeless people everywhere, like really dodge, right? And you go like a couple of blocks that way and you're in like these neighborhoods which are like manicured and Bel Air and stuff's a bit further on, but that that you can't get more opulent. Like I, I've never seen ha- homes as opulent as the ones that I saw in Bel Air, particularly. But you've got Hollywood Hills and Beverly Hills and all that—they're just so over the top, like ridiculously manicured, and they're yeah. just, it's crazy. Like how much they go, and then you walk—you could walk a few kilometers, and you're you're in this sort of hellhole. <laughs> it's just yeah, it's just yeah. the extremes of. Between awesome. astronauts. It's traveling. It's amazing travel and experience. But I think, and I'm sure everyone feels this because everyone is used to what they're used to. But coming home, it does really make you value and appreciate what you have, and especially coming back as an Australian, right? We've got so many things right here in terms of our people and the welfare and stuff like that, that you realize as a traveler to major cities, how like little tolerance you have for all this other bullshit that we're talking about. Because you just don't have that level of level of like human suffering, let's call it, in our major cities. And of course it's there, but there's nothing like what there is overseas. Like even in London, right? We were staying in with some friends in a really beautiful part of South London. And even there, it's like this is like a really expensive, probably, you know, expensive, yuppie kind of area. And you still see some pretty raw stuff, right? Like even just walking down the street in the morning to the main strip or the high street or whatever, you see some things, man. And uh, you just realize it's just integrated in these big cities. It's just woven into the fabric. There's not any place that's free from it. And there are in, I suppose, places like Sydney and Melbourne, where there are some places that are pretty much free from that yeah. almost entirely. Yeah. You could walk around for days and not see that. I do wonder, I, look, I definitely think it's an observable sort of fact that like the worst of the homelessness you'd see in Sydney is nothing compared to what in many of these other places. But I, I do think there's also like a home sort of yeah. home advantage, right? So where you know how to navigate your home and you know how to play, like you, you know what decisions to make. So like maybe to put it another way, if you live in these cities that we've just been talking about, you know how to navigate them and you know how to avoid the bad areas, how to how to deal with these situations when you come to them and they become the impact of them is less. And like this is this goes with food too, right? It's always hard to judge like the quality of another country's food scene because you're getting like just the happenstance or the, the restaurant that it happens to be like next to where you live or the hotel buffet, which is always going to yeah. be shit. Or and <laughs> and you don't really know where the good places are. So it's a lot of most judging Australian food by like yeah. just a random sample of the five cafes nearest to the hotel that someone's staying in. I love that, Gloria Jeans. Let's talk food, right? Because I think that's another massive part of travel and is a huge part for me. And again, not to cause divides here, but I think in somewhere like Italy, especially the places that I mentioned, you probably have some of the most ubiquitous high levels of cuisine and kind of appreciation of produce and that kind of stuff. And yes, there are some 
tourist traps, but even the tourist traps, like you can go to a tourist trap on next to the Trevi Fountain and still have the most amazing gelato or incredible traditional carbonara or something like that, right? And still walk away as a Westerner going, gee, why can't we do that back home? But I'm not sure the same is could be said for different parts of America. So I'm keen on your experience <laughs> of, of food when traveling as well. Well, yeah, I've already given my my family style pasta story, but that was quite emblematic of the whole trip, really. The one thing, so my son, he watches like all these YouTube channels and stuff, and they're usually based in the States. And then he knows all the American fast food places and they've got quite a lot of different fast food chains in America yeah. and and that we don't have in Australia so he just wanted to try all these different things so the moment like he it was almost like he said oh the first thing we do well he was like oh the first thing we're going to do when we get off the plane is go to Chick-fil-A and it's like, fucking hell do you want to sleep or something so we this was like this was the dodgy walk so it was me and my son and we walked I don't know, it, was, it would have been about like 500 meters to a kilometer, something like that. We walked through all these dodgy homeless shelters and all this stuff to get to the Chick-fil-A. And, and it's one of those like drive-through style fast food. Like they they can't trust like having like an actual area to sit down and let people eat their meals. So they have to just have this counter. Oh, really? like, is it purely, is it purely yeah, drive It's all outside. Yeah. So it was, but I think it's a tactic because they know that homeless people and or just, they just don't want to have an indoor scene. So they have this little counter that you order your stuff. And oh, they, that's grim. You, and then you've it's got like the after hours and petrol station. Yeah. And they just host <laughs> pressure washers at the end. Anyway, so we got Chick-fil-A and anyway, so we did the whole fast food. We did every, uh, that was just one of like countless numbers of fast food. So fast food is. It's almost you know, like, like an art form for them though, right? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I, I think fast food is in, in the USA. That's the thing that even though fast food is not like the highest art form of kind of food culture, it is like the thing that the States does the best and it's really unhealthy. So you can't like, you can't just have a diet of fast food, but you know, there's something like cool about the way that like, it's like the in and out burger, right? The way that they do, they do like even just the efficiency of it. Right. And then the quality is like surprisingly like really good, like for something that they've turned around in 30 seconds or whatever. Did you true, do so. old school McDonald's? We did do McDonald's, but that was like virtually the same as Australian McDonald's. They did have a Grimace. Uh, did they have, in Australia, did they have that thing, the uh, the Grimace shake? No. Did that? I don't think so. I, so they had this Grimace. It's like this, it's Grimace's birthday or something. So they had this like purple, it's like a purple thick shake or something. Like when we arrived, they had it, like they were selling it and I saw it, but I wasn't contemplating buying it. And then my son wanted it. And then apparently there's this meme where they're like, <laughs> there's apparently like this internet YouTube meme thing where they're all saying how disgusting it is and like all these people having videos like throwing up when like pretending to throw up when they have it doing all these elaborate things and then like mysteriously Donald's took it off the menu so I didn't see that anymore no I haven't had it I'm assuming it's like purple or something like Grimace right yeah yeah it's purple and uh, yeah Uh, how about you I think you've got to you've got to have your your turn to tell us about Italy look I'll focus on Italy of course London is London and London is probably like New York right it has probably close to the top of everything right if you want it and you seek it out you can probably find one of the best italian one of the best whatever it is around the world so i'm going to put that to the side right because that wasn't where we were at when fine dining so if i just focus on italy there are two dishes two restaurants or dishes battling for supremacy and it's one of those situations where it's hard to understand or hard to separate the location 
from the meal itself, right? Because it's very hard. And especially nowhere harder on earth than in Amalfi, in the Amalfi Coast, when you're looking over the fucking water and the vertical houses and just the beautiful Italian kind of vista. We had this lemon linguine and it was as simple as it sounds, no meat, completely vegetarian, just had this kind of lemon rind tossed through spaghetti with cream. And it was just this incredible sphere, this like helix of like savory, tangy from the lemon. And it was just like a masterpiece, just a masterpiece of the feeling when you eat really good pasta, where you're like, I just want more of it, just fill my mouth up. Happens with pasta, happens with noodles and ramen and that kind of thing. And that was just amazing. So that was one. And then there was this place, this town in Tuscany called Monticello, and they had this particular restaurant there, and they did some of the best like beef tartare with this sun-dried tomatoes and stuff, and it was amazing. But I think the real marvel of Italy is that as a Westerner, you can have everyday lunch, like what we would associate with like court food court style food, right? Just like cheap food, the quality and the taste is just so much higher that you leave the whole of the country scratching your head saying, if it's this simple, if everyone, if nearly everyone can get it right, why can't we import some of this back home, right? And I think people have that feeling when they go to Italy and people have that feeling when they go to France and have one of their croissants or something. They're just like, it's so ubiquitous. So, But to be fair, they can they, they can only cook Italian food, right? That's it. It's, that's what I was like. <laughs> In Italy, you don't go, oh, let's go get some sushi or whatever or you can. Like, that's it. No, it's just it's pasta, some veal, a little bit more pasta, pizza, whatever it is, a bit of seafood. It's all Italian. And that's just what you have to settle into. Yeah. But the quality is so good. How was uh, coffee in Italy? Because that's like the conundrum, right? Because they're the masters of the espresso, but they're not, right? My relationship with Italian coffee, I guess, is a little bit complicated because it's definitely like they, they obviously invented espresso and popularized it. But like a lot of things in Italy, they only do it one way. It's just this is the way we do it. And if you don't like it, then you better learn to like it because there's no other options. And that is their coffee is very Italian roasted. And the only flavor that you will get out of an Italian coffee is chocolate and bitterness, right? That's the only flavor profile. While in, in the West or say an Australian or say like a port, like a new wave coffee scene, the beans are much greener. You get lots of like floral notes, acidity. Sometimes the coffee even challenges you. It's like maybe more acidic than you thought. All these things, right, that kind of have the richness. So that's number one in terms of the espresso. And number two, they're not that fussed with their milk work or quality of milk, right? Like in Australia, you get beautiful velvety micro textured. You get the latte art, like every second Gloria Jean person or chain thing can do a little latte art for you and so on. They're nothing of the sort. But saying all that, you do learn to settle into it. And actually, because it is so similar, you just start to crave it. So when you have your coffee in Italy, it's always the same, no matter where you go. And it just it just fills that spot, right? And it almost becomes that ritual. It's more like a ritual, a quick ritual thing. And of course, they have the standing, they have the standing cafes as well, which I embraced a bit whenever I could, because not only is it a lot cheaper, it's like a third of the price, you just feel a little bit more like part of the scene, right? So you have your little quick macchiato, like the, the piccolos over there, they have little macchiatos, a similar thing, or your cappuccino or latte, flat white or whatever. I kind of learned to love it. I still craved it in the same way. I crave a coffee back here, but it's just not the same. The milk's not the same. It's not velvety. But on the upside, it's cheap. It's actually cheap 
to, to have a coffee over there, which I think is like an Italian thing where they subsidize almost put a ceiling over things like coffee, espresso and like gelato and other things like that. So yeah, I, I quite, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more than the coffee in London actually. Yeah. Yeah. I was never expecting to get good coffee in America. So just at the outset, it, probably in each location that we were staying in, like I found like a place that kind of they you could tell they were like trying to be part of the culture of better coffee right so they would have been like part of the in club like looking down on like other places that couldn't get caught in the same way as we're talking about this having this conversation now so they're definitely part of that superior coffee scene or whatever but still not quite like they don't have this the volume to really turn like a consistent and high quality cup of coffee and the other thing too is the sort of the premium coffee market in America is still very much like a big part of it is like ice-based coffee, so yeah. cold brew. So it's like you see all these people walking out with these like Starbucks-style sort of coffees and it's, ah, uh, yeah, they just can't let that bit go. So that's yeah. still a huge part of it. But, yeah, just the again, the, the milk thing is that they just can't get the milk right. Yeah. And yeah. it's really frustrating. I don't feel they've got like the whole like – strength of the coffee right so some places you order like an extra shot of coffee or you ask for a strong coffee or whatever and that's just like the that's almost just like a double shot whereas <laughs> actually it needs to be even more than that if yeah. you want a strong one so it's so it's experienced so much like indignity when that happens to you as well as an australian like where you try to like order your coffee and it just it, it doesn't come out in the right way and not only that when you question them they take like offense to it. They're like, oh, you shouldn't have asked for that then, shouldn't you? <laughs> like it happened to me in, in London where they do some of the high-end, some of the more trendy places still, like they do flat whites, right? Flat white is on the menu, which is like an Australian New Zealand thing, which is for our international listeners, it's like a, a form of a latte, but more in a cappuccino cup with like just a minimal amount of velvety textured milk. And at this cafe, I go, oh, can I have a flat white? But can I have one regular and one large because I'm going to take away. Yeah. And she looked at me funny and she's like, a large. Okay. And then I was like, all right, I'm in for a treat now. And so she proceeded to put two cups, like she, she poured the espresso into two takeaway cups. And the only difference between a large and a regular flat white is that she filled the regular one up two thirds of the way with milk. And she filled the large one up like all the way with milk. And I'm like, I said to her, no, what's the thing that actually alarmed me? I was like, why is this one like two thirds full? And she's like, oh, that's the regular one. The large one is the one that's full. I'm like, but you just topped it up with milk. And she's like, yeah, you want it large, right? I'm like, but there's only one shot in there. She's like, oh, yeah, well, if you want two shots, you have to pay for an extra shot. And so it's like this really weird thing. is, And they only do that for they only do that for flat whites, I found out from a, like a Londoner. If you order like a latte, a large latte, they'll put the two shots in there and fill it up with milk. So little things like that just throw you and just like, wow, this is getting complicated. Like You don't know what to expect. Yeah. The other thing, um, I mean, you mentioned price of coffee in Italy. I think I spent $15 for a coffee in San Francisco. And oh, I was man. like, oh, this is, oh, this, see, this is, is the better thing, than right? a venti. And it wasn't good. It wasn't, it wasn't a good cup, like, cup of coffee either. That is, um, that is a shocking amount of money for one cup of coffee. Yeah. And of course, like it's, I think you told a story recently about you were in the buying bananas and you're at the checkout and you can't like, you can't backtrack. So it was a, it was a bit <laughs> like that. Like you don't want to say to the barista after you've given them like your super long convoluted coffee order and then they tell you the price and oh, sorry, actually, no. <laughs> see you later. <laughs> it's got to roll with it. Then put yeah. the muffin back. 
But actually, just I don't know how you found Italy, but anyone in Australia who is worried about inflation and like cost of living and all that sort of stuff ought to count themselves lucky because, yeah, everything was very expensive in the US. And yeah, not just because of like exchange rate phenomena, yeah. genuinely, yeah, very expensive. So, yeah, I mean, there were some places. things like. Man does not live on gelato and espresso alone in Italy. For example, like petrol was $3 a litre. So some things are very expensive. You know, you mentioned America being the, the home of such great divides, right, of the have and have nots and all the fallout from that. And I must admit, I found that a lot in, in London, right? Because I found like in, on the English side, more than anything, like America's like new money, right? But in London and stuff, that like real old colonial money and, and what comes along with that it's like there sometimes diverges from the money aspect the finance aspect but that kind of poshness that i don't think you get quite as much in america it's like a little bit more australian there in terms of like how people relate and uh, egalitarian and so on but in in london like you do see those like real divides around like the class system and how posh some people are and do you know a store called fortnum and mason have you heard of of that store in London. If it's a fancy store, then definitely not. It's like a famous store that it's been it's been open longer than Australia's been a country in 1707, and it's all about like fancy high end teas and like the the royals get their teas there and stuff like that. It's very famous and attracts a lot of tourists that want to bring back sample teas and stuff like that. And then the official store that does the coronation teas for King Charles. So they have a whole section on like all his favorite teas and why they're this is this tin represents Charles's love of Africa and especially the tiger. And there's like this big tiger on a tea bag or something. And I was there like I was there like trying to pick out a few presents to take home. And I gotta repeat and I tell share with everyone this like hilarious conversation that I heard. That one of those conversations about like, oh, actually people from a very different class here. And I was in the homeware section near the soaps and things like that. And the place is fancy when the people working there are pretty much indistinguishable from the clients. Like the closer they are together in terms of the retail staff and the clients, the posher the place. And in this case, they were identical. They were both women in their late 50s, early 60s with flowing blonde hair with a posh accent. And they were kind of like talking to each other like they were friends. And one of them, I'll try my best to recount this, but they were like, the customer was like, oh, darling, I just love this soap. I've been using it for the longest time, but I am just shocked that they redesigned the soap bar. And you know what? It's just impossible. It won't fit in my soap dish anymore. It's a disaster. And then the, <laughs> the retail staff was like, oh, I know. I don't know why they did that. So many people have been telling me that their soap dishes need to be replaced or something like that. But you know, what we could do for you, if you're not in a rush, we can send it to our guy and we can shave it down for you. It takes a bit of extra time. If you're not in a rush, we could do that. And she said, oh, really? Wonderful. So they'll shave it down for me. So yes, if you're willing to wait. I'm like, oh my God, this place has a guy that shaves down the soap to fit the dish. I was just like, <laughs> I was like literally less than two meters away. I was like struggling to hold back the laughter of like how absurd <laughs> and ridiculous. This lady is buying one bar of soap. And she is sending it to be custom whittled down. What do you do with the whittled soap remains? Like, where does that go? Does it, can, I, can I buy that one? Can I like <laughs> compact in a ball and take it home? Can you imagine? Oh. While the world is like, there's so much like crime and homelessness in London. There are two women having an in-depth conversation about one bar of soap and sending it away from custom shaving service so it fits <laughs> in a porcelain dish at their home. That just was like the most like London conversation ever. I was like, damn, that's good. 
So we've covered homelessness, but I do want to discuss something because it comes back to our episode around guns. And you mentioned to me that you had a bit of an experience at the gun range with your family. So I'm really keen on your reflections on that and also like how, if it has changed anything at all in terms of like attitudes or misconceptions or whatever it is. And that could be yours or your boys or your wife's, whatever it is. Yeah. So we were in Vegas and actually, no, the start of the story was actually um, in San Francisco because I don't know how it came up, but he wanted to like do airsoft, which is like BB guns, like similar to that. And... He want no. He wanted to buy it, buy an airsoft gun, and it's like, yeah, like we can't buy it because you can't bring it back to Australia and stuff. Anyway, and not only that, but we wouldn't buy it for him anyway. But we did go to a shop. That, just as a bit of a fun fact, is was the international spy shop in Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, which is actually owned by mm-hmm. the shop itself or the building at least. Maybe not the shop, but the building is owned by. Do you know the room that really? funny b-grade so bad it's good yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) so like that that guy who like made that movie he's apparently he's actually quite wealthy and he owns that building and it's got like this big poster of him on it outside but anyway how random yeah i learned that later actually after anyway so we went to this international spy shop and they had this they actually had airsoft guns and we looked through the guns and then it turned out oh we look oh they actually have a range right so my son like, okay, we're definitely not buying it for you, but I think it was like 40 bucks or something. It's like, okay, you go and have some fun with the airsoft gun. Anyway, so he shoots, he actually shoots the airsoft. It's like little BB guns, little pellets, and they're pretty solid. This was just going to be his like thing to boast about when he got back to school or whatever. Better than the what? show and tell of I've actually got a real <laughs> airsoft gun. <laughs> I was just Googling. I don't I think I just had this random thought of, oh, I wonder like what gun ranges are like in, in Vegas. So I Google up the deal and then like I see... They have a kids package. No way. Like, surely you have to be over like 18 to like to go to these gun ranges. And I'm like, reading off it. So, no, they let 10 year olds like fire like machine guns and all this sort of stuff. So I look into yeah. it and I was just like, oh, no, nah, we got to do this. This is, this is just like too good, like not to like to pass up. So I do all the research and find this one place anyway. So this is like across the family. So all of us, we, we shot. So a, hang on, I have to remember now. What did we fire? We, so we shot a Glock, a, an M, MP5, which is a machine gun, an M4, which is like a heavier solid more solid more powerful machine gun which is military yeah military style and and an ak-47 and so and all of us so my son my wife me like we're just like <laughs> shooting machine guns so every real guns like real bullets and stuff so we've ticked that box now so what did you think about their approach to it and like what if anything do you think that your boy took away from it oh it's a story right it's going to be like it's his story he's going to tell for the rest of school and no one's going to believe him right and he's going to be like oh i've got a video watch this video i think it's just that thing that like kids don't generally fire machine guns you know real ones (laughs) well Um, not if they're not mexican so i think that's what he's going to take from it it won't be i don't think there's any life lesson out of it there's a story to tell and i think it's a story for me to tell i do believe that primarily it would just be a story to tell like a boasting rights but don't you think that the experience of say even like shooting a glock will put him off guns a little bit because it's so uncomfortable, like it's so loud. It's still, there's like a new respect for it. It's, oh, this is really not a toy. Like this is actually serious yeah, stuff. Yeah. It like, it's well, loud, it frightens you, it's uncomfortable, it smells. 
Like it's not it's yeah. like when you actually deal with it. Yeah. So definitely um, for whatever I felt, he must have felt that on steroids because he's much smaller than me. But yeah, I just remember going through it, right? And it was like, it was one of those experiences where you're firing this thing and it's just, it's just like going on. It's just so powerful. And you're just like, oh, this is this amazing experience, but I can't yeah. wait for it to be over because it's just, oh, what if I'm like, what if I slip and like shoot the guy next to me? <laughs> it's just like I can't be trusted yeah. with this with this weaponry. Like, I think the M4 was pretty. Um, so like the AK47 was that was just like a little bit wild, and it was like there was a lot of like force backwards, and it was a bit. It was very hard to aim. But the M4 was like really powerful, and it was like it was a lot easier to hold still. Like it was just ergonomically easier because yeah. you yeah you had the right handles, and it was easier to hold a lot more robustly but i just i just saw these like ex- like the, fire, the bullets yeah. like exploding like in front of me and like the, all the yeah. like, just smoke surrounding me it was just like oh my god yeah um, the, like the muzzle fire and stuff like that it's like crazy yeah it was just it was really full-on yeah but yeah anyway yeah i think that's what i meant because the romanticism about it is gone it's like actually this is a dirty trade this is not something that you like glorify like john wick firing bullets with no ear protection and running around no this is like operating machinery it's dirty it's, 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 it's,